Steve. Happy late Monday. Happy late Monday to you, man. I was uh, I was flying home from your house yesterday, so we didn't record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a fun week, man. Came out here with your daughter and showed her everything that uh, Idaho has to offer. Yeah, yeah, we Not uh, everything, but a little glimpse. <laughs> yeah, we started talking a year or two ago with my daughter and basically told her, you know, between elementary and middle school, I want to do just a trip, you know, just the two of us, and basically left it up to her on where she wanted to go. Hopefully she wasn't going to say Paris or something. So I didn't have to like override her. <laughs> we wouldn't go anywhere, but not there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, man, she wanted to go to Idaho. So we come out, uh, came out for the week and it was good, man. It was, uh, with rafting, paddleboarding, hiking, hot springs, camping, just a little bit of everything. Like you said, a lot of what, uh, Idaho has to offer. We had a blast. It was, uh, it was good too. Like, you know, there is obviously a trip to enjoy it, but for me, I'm also wanting to expose her to things. Like even when we did that uh, hot springs hike, Steve, it ended up being almost eight miles round trip, and she was kind of struggling with her shoes and some blisters and stuff like that. And so just like that little bit of extra out of her comfort zone, pushing her through. It was the same thing with rafting, and she got a little bit out of her comfort zone. And you know, even though it's my daughter, I still love to like not like put her in situations where she's uncomfortable, but help her get into situations where she can kind of push her own limits a little bit. And so I was glad that that was part of it. Mm, yeah, man. Yeah. Back to Monday minute. We got uh, a variety of listener questions. Um, you know, it's that time of year where there's just so much going on guys planning for seasons. So, uh, listeners as always, if you got anything, uh, to, to have for us, we'd be happy to tackle it. Just shoot us an email to podcast at exomontgear.com. But Today we had some fun follow-up. You know, we, in the past couple of weeks on the Mule Deer series of the podcast, have talked about um, scouting for mule deer and locating mule deer and have had some cool follow-up to that. Um, and then particularly, Steve, you had mentioned at one point in that conversation with Jason about, um, you know, wishing you can get more real-time imagery in Google Earth and had some cool follow-up emails to that about Google Earth and real-time imagery and a few things that I just flat-out didn't know about. Um, so I'm excited to kind of dive into these tools and then also the feedback that you guys uh, have given us, just want to make sure the whole audience knows about it. One is, um, before we hit the new tools, one guy was confused, I guess, when he listened to the episode, he was trying to replicate some of what we talked about in Google earth, but he was using the app or I'm sorry, he was using the websites, uh, which totally escaped my mind that, Google Earth, you know, when I think of here Google Earth, I'm always thinking of the standalone application you download either to your PC, Mac, what have you. Um, but then also a lot of those features are now in the web browser as well, right? So alongside of Google Maps, you have some Google Earth features. And so just want to throw it out there for other guys who might be new to Google Earth, download the app for sure. Um, don't just use the browser because the the versatility and the functions within the app itself are going to be much greater and it's a free download. So no excuse not to do it there. Um, but one of the new tools that uh, a listener, Paul reached out about, there is Google earth engine um, or Google Explorer. I'll leave the links in the show notes where you guys can check it out, but it's just explorer.earthengine.google.com. And it's basically, um, a totally different interface, but what's cool about it is you can add a bunch of different data layers. Um, and so there's a function in there. You just click add data. You can look at a bunch of near you or near the area real-time satellite products. And so he even recommended some specifically um, that, again, I'll leave in the show notes. So 
go check out the link in the show notes for that. And then also I'll leave some of the information that Paul left. Um, but basically it's a, a way to add much more real time current data to a view of an area. So it really is Steve, kind of what you're going for of what's out there to get an area and then look at it in real time. And then what's always good. And we touched on this in the podcast as well as just being able to look at the same area through different seasons and different times. So just another way to do that because it's, it's always good to get as much information on a given area as you can and look at that from different perspectives, different times of year, different applications, all that. But this one's pretty cool, Steve. I think you'll like it. Um, it does take a little bit of effort because you're going in and kind of having to add data. It's not just, you know, obviously I think in a perfect world, Steve, you just pull up Google Earth and like get the latest real-time data and be able to filter it. So it's not quite that easy, but it doesn't take too much work. I did play with it a little bit and uh, gets closer to what you were looking for. Hmm. There was a second tool, um, is actually from NASA, and this one does take a little bit more work even than the Google Earth engine I just mentioned. And again, I'll leave the uh, the link in the show description for this, but just want to throw it out there. There's one called Worldview, and it's a NASA website. It has an unbelievable amount of data overlays that you can add to it. Um, so again, just if you guys are like really wanting to take that deep dive, look at different layers, look at different um, as close to real-time data as you can. NASA is another one that has continually updated data for certain areas and imagery for certain areas. It's good. You know, one thing I I guess I realized about what makes it difficult for just real-time data is you'll run into when you start adding some of these layers is just cloud cover, right? So you mm-hmm. can have oh, this is imagery from five days ago, but the conditions were terrible and I can't actually see anything. And so that's another reason I'm like, man, that that would be tough from a like the broad Google Earth perspective just to have clear imagery of everything up to date. You know, I'm sure that there's quite a lot of cleanup that they have to do, to be honest with you, on getting good imagery um, that's up to date. But that NASA tool is another one. And then um, this guy also mentioned... Do you so in Google uh, Google Maps the Street View? You have that little guy that you drag onto the map. Do you know what I'm talking about, Steve? Mm-hmm. I completely overlooked that they have that in Google Earth now. Do you use that? Mm-mm. Yeah, exactly. So I always go into Google Earth and like say we we talked about for example picking out a glassing point and then looking for using Google Earth to to change the the tilt and the pan to figure out what type of visibility you'd have from that glassing point. I've always done that manually, if you will, like changing the perspective and controls. But they actually have that little, quote unquote, little man um, from Google Maps in Google Earth now. And so you literally just drag drag that guy in a point and it immediately puts you into that ground level view. And it is perfect for figuring out glassing points. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I've done that similar by just you continually to, to click on a spot or zoom in and then eventually it takes you out of air, like, you know, viewing from above to the ground, but it yeah. just takes a little bit of time. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It is super, super handy. I've done that a lot. <laughs> get all the way to ground level view and, um, get a really good idea of, of what you can see from certain glassing spots and, uh, like what you can even kind of get an idea of like what trees are going to be in your way and all that stuff. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'd always done that manually. Um, but yeah, they have the quote unquote little man, just like for guys are probably familiar with from, Google Maps or that uh, Street View tool there. It's in Google Earth now. I just completely overlooked that it's there, and it definitely shortens the curve on getting into good views. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's some good stuff. Again, I'll leave the links to those uh, in the show description here if you guys want to go check those out. Um, 
Another question, this was an interesting one, just to think through on, this guy was writing in, it sounds like he's newer to finding some areas for elk hunting. He basically said, what kind of roads are you typically encountering when you're going after elk? I like to think the rougher and more degraded the road will keep the Subaru fans away and allow us, and he had an us in parentheses, the hunters, to access elk that aren't harassed by hikers. Is road quality a consideration in selecting a hunting area? Um, I think that that last question is probably where we should start. Is road quality a consideration in selecting a hunting area for you, Steve? No, not like I think we've talked about that on the past. Some of the best spots can be off of a paved highway. Uh, like figure out a way to park 100 yards off the highway and hike straight up the hill, and um, you can get into elk pretty quick. You know, because everybody just drives right by it. So. It is nice. Um, you know, I always feel good about getting in somewhere really rough and rugged where you got to get in four wheel drive and get back there. But it's like, seems from past experience, every other hunter is thinking the same thing, yeah. uh, especially if there's a trailhead at the end of that rugged road. Um, and you, you know, you just drive up that road and you're like, oh man, I'm going to be the only one back here. And you get there and there's three other trucks parked there already. So, um, yeah, it's not. I mean, yes, it can be a tool, but really, uh, I guess, you know, maybe if you're in Colorado, it's different, but here in Idaho, the, the summer backpackers are pretty much all done by September. It's, you know, you just don't see them even, um, there's a few areas I've uh, hunted that have like lakes that are super popular backpack into the summer. Right. Um, and, and when September hits, you just don't see backpackers back there anymore. They're, they're they just kind of wrap up. So might be different, like I said, in, in different states, but here in Idaho, it's just not really an issue. So, um, yeah, like I said it's uh, uh, definitely a tool you could use um, to to try to limit people, but uh, just keep in mind every other hunter probably has a four wheel drive truck and can do the same thing you are. So. Yeah, yeah, and when he talks, I mean, that was my thought on you know when he talks about getting away from the hikers, it, that doesn't have. Yes, road quality somewhat, but that's just more of getting away from established trails. I've been, I can think of two specific instances in Colorado where I've been heading up four-wheel drive roads that I'm like, on the way up, I'm like, yes, there's going to be nobody up here. You know, this is going to be awesome. And then I get up there and in one instance, it was hikers. Uh, There was a popular trailhead up there and I just thought the conditions would keep people away. Um, Mm -hmm. and there was legit Subarus up there, like just getting (laughs) after it on this mountain road with snow and snow melt. And we were in a, a four wheel drive working to get up there. And sure enough, there's other folks up there. Um, and that's just, again, there was a trailhead. Uh, another instance was not so much a prevalent trailhead, but a, a rough road steep that we went up and the whole way up. I'm like, this is money. Like, yeah, there might be another single truck up here or something, and believe it or not, some dude was up there with a horse trailer. I have no idea how we did that because I wanted to watch. <laughs> um, but yeah, you just can't. You basically like if you can get up there, other people can get up there for the most part, right? So um, you might think that the road conditions would discourage people, but again, maybe somebody's trying to do the same thing you're doing and having that same thought. So um, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider um, roads too much. I would consider them, especially if you're out of state. You can look at things um, on Google Earth or, you know, find road reports or what have you. But that is something to keep in mind. I mean, there's been plenty of hunts ruined, um, even by people I know personally who've, you know, broken tie rods and done stuff like that on hunting trips that 
boom, they just, they lost their hunting trips. They lost their days because they were off road, um, and pushing it and then had issues. And that turns into a giant waste of time and a a really big towing bill when you're out there. So, um, maybe you want to avoid it for sure. If you're out of state or if it's a new area or something like that. So we're thinking through, but definitely not like a, a key to finding, um, amazing elk hunting. I don't think. Yeah. I had a question um, from a new archer. And actually, you know, it, this question reminded me of something else we got in an email. Uh, I just want to touch on this first. It was from a, a customer who was looking at packs. Um, and he wrote in to me and said, I have, I have a list of eight to nine, and this is in quotes from him, impressively stupid questions. Can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> and, but then he went on to say, I would rather admit my ignorance up front now rather than pretend I know what I'm doing now and figure out later that I'm an idiot. Um, I literally saved that email because I thought that his perspective and mindset was so important. And I I wanted to share it out there with this archery question made me think of it. But if you don't know something, ask. And that could, you know, we could say that about like packs, right? Like give us a call, ask us a dumb question. We are happy to help. That could be about hunting. That could be about whatever. But it was just really funny to me because I think there is, especially when it comes to like hunting and outdoors and things like that. For a lot of guys, it's this, you know, you want to feel like you know it all type thing. But what that guy said was so important. He said, I'd rather admit my ignorance now than figure out later that I'm an idiot which I thought was so key. Like, don't just assume and don't just play like you have it together just to then later figure out, man, I'm an idiot. I should have just asked the question. Um, I just thought that was a really good mindset um, and wanted to share that with guys. Just encourage them like, hey, find a buddy, you know, send us an email, something like that. But like, if you have stupid questions, just ask just so you can figure it out. Uh, And we'll be the first to tell you as well if we don't have the answer. But um, that's just important to keep in mind, you know, in this day and age where so many people want to just act like they know it all. I certainly don't know it all, Steve. I know that you kind of have that main, same mindset of always wanting to learn. Um, so yeah, ask stupid questions. That was like an aside, but I think it's a important thing to mention. Yeah, no, I like it. I like that approach. Yeah. Back to this new archer. Um, he said, I'm new to archery hunting. I was curious what you and others do for a pre-shot routine. I know it's unique to the shooter, but can't really find any info online that would help someone build their own pre-shot routine. Can you share your pre-shot routine or some tips that would help in this? Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've definitely heard people preach a lot about, you know, specific routines. I guess mine's just, it's not, um, I don't know, it's like laid out in front of me, but it just over the years it's become habitual. So, um, yeah, just get my, get my hand, uh, obviously knock an arrow, uh, arrows knocked, put my hand on the, on the, the grip and kind of position it. You know, I kind of point my bow down toward the ground, I guess, and get it positioned, um, where it's consistent every time. It's just a feel, I guess. I don't know how else to describe that. Um, and then I always shoot, um, to me, it's really important. It's kind of a side note to be to be able to draw your bow in any position. So if essentially if, if your poundage is too high that you kind of got to do the whole like point your bow to the sky and 
and crank back, you know, um, that's a really good indicator that you need to lower the poundage on your bow. Um, I always tell guys like, I, w- I want to be able to sit on my butt completely flat. Um, and like, so my legs are pointing 90 degrees to where I'm shooting and just draw my bow, like point your bow arm straight out and draw your bow back nice and slow. And even cause that is going to happen in a hunting situation, right? Where you're in an awkward position, uh, the animal might be looking your direction or whatever, and you got to move very slowly. So you need to be able to draw your bow that way. Um, so to kind of work on that, I always get my, you know, get my hand on the grip, get it settled up. And then I raise my bow arm and basically point the bow exactly where I'm going to be shooting and then just draw nice and level back. There's not like this, there's not a lot of movement to it, right? If you're looking straight at me as I'm drawing the bow, you're, you're just really just seeing the, the, your hand and kind of your you know elbow, maybe a little bit move straight back. Um, come to full draw, find my anchor point and then get in the peep sight. And while I'm getting in the peep sight, I'm also leveling the sight, um, and, and making sure my bubble level is good. And then I just maintain the, um, my anchor point and, and the peep sight, sight housing alignment, right? So I'm, um, slightly you know just shifting around a little bit to make sure that i'm level and then everything's lined up and then from there i go into autopilot of pick the pin um get the pin in the area that i want to shoot right and then i blur out the pin focus on the target and shoot um and yeah i guess that works for me it's (laughs) probably more 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 thought out than i realized as i was talking through it it's definitely uh yeah you know it's to me important to consistent anchor um make sure that the the one thing you have to do no matter the situation is make sure your sight is level right um if the shot's over you know 30 yards or something like that or you know 20 yards you're probably not gonna see much of a difference but Mm -hmm. um get level get get your anchor good and and then uh Hopefully you've practiced enough. You kind of go into autopilot mode and the rest of the shot just happens on its own. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I developed a shot routine early on, you know, being self-taught in our tree again, just like reading stuff, checking stuff out. I just knew that for me, I had to have some sort of routine to make sure I was doing the fundamentals. Right. Because when you start in our tree, it feels like there's a lot going on and there is, uh, and it's one of those things where you can you could focus on one aspect of shooting and then realize that you've neglected another. So for me, a shot routine helped me make sure I was maybe not doing everything I needed to do, but at least like checking all the big boxes. Um, mm-hmm. And so a routine was super helpful for me. And I ended up developing my own. It um, very similar to yours, Steve, but I had this little, I didn't develop it as an acronym, but afterwards I realized I had an acronym and it was just AGLAS, A-G-L-A-S. So it was just anchor, grip, level, aim, squeeze. And, uh, I did that years and years and years and years ago. And like you said, hopefully you do that and it be just, it becomes subconscious. Right. So I don't, I don't knock an arrow. And then these days think, okay, anchor grip, level aim, squeeze, anchor grip, level aim, squeeze. I just do it subconsciously, but I will come back to it to make sure, um, that I am still doing those things because they all are important. And so like you, um, you broke yours down again for me, it's super similar. I, I essentially am. I like how you started your shot routine, Steve, before you even draw the bow. I think that's awesome. Mine was pretty much at full draw. Let me make sure I'm going through my routine at that point. Um, and so for me, at full draw, it all starts with that anchor point and being consistent. Um, ideally having not just 
an anchor point reference point but a few of them right so shooting a handheld release for me my knuckles are in a certain position on my jawline nose on the string that type of deal um yeah start with that anchor point make sure you're solid there grip um i like how you did yours before you even draw the bow um i definitely give mine a double check to make sure i'm not torquing at full draw or anything like that level um you know at this point i already do essentially have um, the side housing on the target double checking my level aim for me is not only selecting a pin and putting on the target but really just that whole idea of you know those last two steps for me aim and squeeze they're they're in parallel almost right because Mm -hmm. you're aiming again the idea is to just continue to aim and squeeze so it's not like you pick a point and you fire the trigger like oh shoot go now it's on there go um that whole target panic but it's more of like aim 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 squeeze 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 aim 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 and just let that shot go off as you're aiming so yeah yeah for me it's just anchor level or sorry anchor grip level aim squeeze is my quote-unquote shot routine um that's years and years ago it's something i specifically focused on something i essentially do now just out of habit and subconscious um practice and then something i still come come back to so those are ideas on a shot routine it doesn't have to be those specifically but i think just the big idea is break down the shot process like think through that mentally um and understand what core components are there and then figure out what makes sense for you on how to piece that together so that you're executing a good shot every time um and like we said checking those big boxes so hopefully that's Um, helpful on a shot routine yeah one thing that i'll add to it because as you were talking through that i reminded when i'm finding my grip i actually i also uh, get my feet in position Mm. um so i shoot with in general, kind of a, an open, I basically point my, you know, front toe at about a 45 degree angle. Yep. Um, so, so my chest is kind of opened up. Um, and that's something that I do, um, every single shot. And especially, um, like you want to have, I want to have my feet firmly planted on the ground and not have like any rocks underneath or sticks or anything like that, that are going to kind of roll. So, even if I'm at an archery range and it's kind of on gravel, right? I kind of like kick my feet back and forth just a little bit to make sure they're like firmly planted on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then in a hunting situation, I take that quite a few steps further in that like, say I'm, say we're bugling in a bull, he's screaming, he's out there at like 70 yards. Like I immediately look at the ground and assess what's below me knowing that, uh, and I said, this is almost subconscious, right? It's, it's just, I'm, I'm looking down there because inevitably he, I'm going to be at full draw and I'm going to need to move. Um, I'm going to need to take a step, one step to the left or a step forward or whatever. Yep. So I want to, before I draw and I'm completely focused in on that, I want to make sure there's nothing below me that, uh, I'm going to step on a stick or if there's a big rock, like even if there is a big rock and I don't have time to move it, I just want to be aware that it's there. Um, so I don't want to, I almost don't want to mention that to guys because I want you like if it's your first time elk hunting to like get too much in your mind, <laughs> but it's definitely something that that I'm aware of, right? Like yeah. I want to understand what's below my feet, so I a you know just like I said, if nothing else, even if I'm at the archery range, I just want to be on like firm ground and not have you know a little uh, golf ball sized rock that's under my foot that once I come to full draw, I realize is kind of like my foot's wobbling back and forth, and then 
and then out hunting situation, I want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to make noise. If I need to shuffle a little bit, I'm not kicking a rock or I'm not breaking a stick or not a bunch of pine needles. They're going to be crunchy under my feet, you know, those types of things. So Mm -hmm. something to keep in mind Um, when I do uh, a mule deer stock and I've finally gotten to, um, you know, I'm 50 yards above the buck and it's like, this is as far as I'm going to get. And I'm waiting for hours for it to stand up. I literally like clean house below me, you know what I mean? Like just slowly one pine needle at a time, start picking up, uh, everything and getting it out of the way. And, um, I could specifically remember, uh, I was uh, a few years back, I was uh, on the high side of a tree and the buck was blowing me and I was kind of shooting through the limbs. And every time a good strong wind would blow, I'd, I'd snap one of the little limbs just to create more shooting lanes for myself. And, um, something to think about that's kind of, that's going to kind of help you the, that, uh, when that moment of truth comes and, and you're at full draw. Yeah, no, that's good. I like it. It's, I've always thought that same thing and um, I've tied it to what you said about shooting lanes, right? So if I know I have like, okay, here's my primary shooting lane, like here's what I think is ideal, but then what if this happens? Okay, here's this shooting lane. Part of me looking at shooting lanes is also what type of movement do I have to make to then be in a shooting position for that shooting lane? And part of that is like ground cover, right? So, and some of it, like you said, is even breaking sticks, like move this branch so that I can move from this position to that position for a shooting lane or look at the feet. Um, that's great, man. That's good stuff. Um, last quick question. A guy wrote in and said, have you looked into Quigley Ford optics? So these are rifle scopes. He said they make, they make a scope with your ballistics built into the glass so that you can range once then just be on the gun. I have different scopes with custom turrets, and I love them, but I'm really interested in this scope model. I'd never heard of uh, Quigley Ford Optics, to be honest with you, so I was uh, curious about this. Took a quick look. Um, looks like essentially, you know, take like a BDC-style reticle, right? So a bullet drop compensator is going to have some sort of hash marks that uh, at- attempt to line up with certain yardages, but obviously a general BDC reticle um, isn't necessarily going to line up to your specific cartridge caliber, bullet choice, barrel length. Like there's so many variables, right? So these are more of a, a custom, uh, custom reticle that is more tailored to, um, your specific setup. So kind of a, a really dialed in BDC type reticle. Um, they could be great. Uh, I don't know anything about the company again, from a quality perspective, I would just be really cautious about etching that in. Right. So you Mm -hmm. go with a custom setup in this reticle. Number one, what if you want to use this scope on another rifle? Probably not going to be relevant. Um, if you change your hunting load, you're now losing the accuracy of that because you're dealing with different ballistics. Um, if you change your location in terms of elevation, you're losing the accuracy of that because of ballistic. So again, when we talk about truly being precise in terms of what is my bullet doing over an extended distance, uh, there's just so many variables to that. Um, you know, you've got, what is my bullet weight? What is my velocity? What is my ballistic coefficient? Um, you know, in, in terms of velocity, what is my barrel length now? What is uh, the environmental conditions? Again, um, air density, altitude, that type of thing. That's all going to have an effect on how your bullet performs. And, you know, you can 
change one of those variables and yes your your drops will change over distance but maybe not significantly so like maybe this reticle would still get the job done but just keep in mind you change any variable and you're losing the precision so i would just say in general um, these guys may make great glass and a great product but i would just be really apprehensive to use it um, as like a, a do-it-all scope. It might be, if you're looking to dial something in for a specific hunt, it could be great. But if you're just looking for, I want this to be my rifle scope for different hunts, different places, different species, you're really locking yourself into a pretty narrow window with that. Um, I was even talking with you, Steve, recently about, you know, I was doing load development um, with those hammer bullets and then looking at numbers here uh, at home and then looking at okay, what is that going to do, um, you know, for my elk hunt this fall there in Idaho? And it's like, it, it was a massive difference just going from uh, the elevation change, you know, doing yeah. low development here at 500 feet and hunting elk at, say, 5,000. It's probably going to be a bit higher than that. But to use those nice round numbers, like, it, it's a dramatic difference on what your bullet's doing over distance. And so if I were to, um, you know, set up a reticle, I'd really want to dial it into an elevation range I knew I'd be shooting with. And I've done uh, a similar deal in the past, like, um, you know, shot that VX5 HD scope, still using it. But um, one of the options they have, it comes with the standard MOA uh, adjustment turret, and you can do their CDS or their custom dial system. So you can tell them the particulars on your speed and bullet and BC and elevation and create, um, you know, a dial now that instead of MOA adjustment has your yardages. Um, and I, so I built one of those and tested it and it does work good when you're shooting in the variables that you built that um, turret for. It works great. So just keep in mind variables change. And especially with that reticle being etched into the glass, um, you're just locking yourself in to quite a bit. So yeah. it's a, it's a big commitment. Yeah, that, it's funny because I basically did what he's talking about with. Uh, so I've got a Night Force SHV scope on mine. It's got an MOA reticle in there, uh, and I p tweaked my zero um, until four MOA was 400 yards, and it actually comes out to like 1.98 MOA is 300 yards. Um, so it's basically I shoot um, zero to 195 yards. Uh, if it's 300 yards, I hold two MOA. If it's 400 yards, I hold four. And and I did that uh, on the assumption that I'm shooting at 6,000 feet because uh, that gives me, um, you know, most of my hunts here in Idaho, other states, uh, well, here in Idaho for sure, are going to happen between five and 8,000 feet, right? Um, and then uh, obviously I've just got the everything set up if, and I've got my rangefinder and that SIG BDX system. So, um if I do, if it is a longer shot or I've got more time, like my bear this year that I shot already, um, you know, I arranged it and top of my head, I think it was like 375, 380, something like that. And took the time to dial in the scope because I had the time to sit there and wait for the bear to step back out. Um, but I like being able to shoot quickly if needed. You know, I think, um, you and I were just talking about this on the, on the elk cut. We were like, you know, how the country lays out, there's some kind of points you could post up on and, and, probably you know snipe an elk at six seven hundred yards really easily uh so it's like super you could fall into that trap so quick of geeking out on the ballistics and what bullet's going to perform the best and all that and then 
The reality is you're going to come out here and probably, you know, 90% chance you shoot that elk at 125 yards as we're like hiking up the hill or something like that. So um, I think it's really important to not get so hung up on long range dialing and make sure that you still have a very practical functional system for shooting out to 400 yards quickly. Um, and that's probably what this guy's getting at. But yeah, as you said, the heat, you know, it maybe he's got his gun is absolutely dialed. He's been shooting the same load. Um, knows that it's perfect, loves the bullet. Uh, and I don't know what these scopes cost, but, um, you know, maybe it makes sense, but you said you, you change any of those variables, uh, and you want to tack onto that shooting long distances. Um, you know, there's just too many things going on on there that to have something permanently fixed for a certain bullet, certain elevation, certain gun just seems, um, yeah, a little bit limiting to me. Yeah, always fun topics to talk about, man. It's been uh, obviously if you know you want to dive into more of that, we've done some recent episodes on BC and ballistics. Um, you know, check out the the stuff like, for example, when I know when we talked with Steve from Hammer Bullets, we talked about maximum point blank range a bit. When we talked with Brian Litz from Burger, we talked about BC and the effects of that. Uh, when we talked with Darren Cooper, we talked more about uh, maximum point blank range versus kind of zeroing and dialing. So there's a lot of good info um, in conversations I'd call in the past six weeks. Um, if you go back to those kind of Friday uh, firearms episodes that we did there. So um, yeah, that's a wrap for today, guys. Again, if you have any questions for us, uh, whether they're impressively stupid or not, is that one guy <laughs> mentioned, uh, just send them to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Uh, excited that it's, you know, pretty much July, like really getting to crunch time, a lot to think through and talk through. So be happy to be a part of that. Just shoot us an email. Uh, thanks for tuning in as always. We'll be back on Wednesday. So tomorrow with a full length episode with South Cox, um, for our mule deer series and really breaking down stalking for mule deer. And you can translate this to, to stalking in general, but there's just some nuggets of gold in this conversation with, South Cox. So make sure you tune back in and check that out and we'll talk to you soon.